The October Surprise. No, that's not when you get a full-size Snickers bar in your Halloween basket. In American politics, October Surprise is a term for a newsworthy event that has been deliberately planned to happen right before the November election, usually before a presidential election. This event is supposed to sway the electorate away from one candidate and or towards the other. At least, that's what William Casey thought when he coined the term back when he was running Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential campaign. He was referring to the Iran hostage crisis, but there have been other supposed 11th hour or 10th month, if you prefer, events, even before that, that have occurred in October or at least late in the campaign season that seemed to influence an important election, or so the conspiracy theories go. We'll take a look at some of the October surprises throughout U.S. presidential election history, including the original 1980 theory. Along the way, we'll encounter sort of a greatest hits of some of the worst things that America expresses, deliberate smear attempts, false charges, false claims, outright lies, political chaos, boozing, racism, homophobia, financial collapse brought about by rampant greed, and even really bad weather brought about by terminal short-sightedness and politicizing literally everything. The October Surprise, fact or fiction, because the world is weird. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. So in its origins, the October Surprise was actually about a fear that Carter, president at the time, would drop a big public relations and diplomatic coup on the Reagan campaign, ensuring Carter's win in November. Campaign manager William Casey called this an October Surprise. This has led to a bewildering trail of numerous allegations pointing to the Reaganites trying to prevent that October Surprise from happening. As I said before, in modern-day political talk, though, it is now thought to mean something of note that is engineered specifically to sway the electorate towards one candidate or against the other candidate. It doesn't always happen in October, but it almost always happens late in the campaign. And the common wisdom is that this has always been the case, which, like a lot of conspiracy theories themselves, is a mixture of fact, speculation, and fiction. What did I miss? The Revolution of 1800. So the first thing we might want to call an October surprise happened back in the fourth ever presidential campaign. Things got pretty nasty. Thomas Jefferson was the vice president, 
and he decided to take on his boss, the incumbent President John Adams. Now, Jefferson was a member of the Democratic-Republican Party, a party he and James Madison had founded in the 1790s, mainly to oppose the Federalist Party. The Federalist Party was founded by Alexander Hamilton, pushing his ideas of a strong central government, especially a strong central financial system, and Adams was one of those. Now, Jefferson and his followers said all sorts of mean things about Adams. One Jefferson supporter actually called him, quote, a hideous hermaphroditical character. But even Hamilton, who founded the party that Adams was part of, didn't like him either. They were both Federalists, but Adams was not as much a Federalist as Hamilton was and constantly ignored Hamilton's advice. So then in October, Hamilton dropped what might be the very first October surprise in American presidential election history. He published a 54-page document just slamming Adams, saying, ultimately, that it was better to have Jefferson, an enemy, at the head of the government than Adams, because at least you knew where you stood with Jefferson, and Jefferson, quote, will not involve our party in the disgrace of his foolish and bad measures. Many historians looking back say this is one of the nastiest campaigns in all of American history, and it did have some lasting effects. Jefferson's vice president, Aaron Burr, the guy who would later kill Hamilton in a duel, essentially created the modern electioneering process during this election. Did Hamilton's diatribe against Adams sway the voters? Unknown, but we do know that Jefferson and Burr won. Quote, quote, electoral fraud, fraud, unquote, unquote, in 1840. 1840. So the incumbent president in 1840 was the Democrat Martin Van Buren. The Whig Party, that's W-H-I-G, had shown up just a few years before sort of in opposition to President Andrew Jackson. During the 1840 electoral campaign season, they held their first national convention and managed to get a candidate, William Henry Harrison. Now, the incumbent Van Buren was facing a bit of an uphill battle. He wasn't particularly popular, and there were some issues going on. Plus, the Whigs had Harrison, a war hero, and his running mate for vice president, John Tyler. They coined a catchy phrase, Tippecanoe and Tyler too, so Van Buren was understandably nervous. He managed to convince federal prosecutors to start charging Whig politicians in New York with fraud on a number of counts, claiming that they had paid people to travel between New York State and Pennsylvania in state elections the previous year so those people could vote multiple times. He announced the charges in mid-October, something of an October surprise, and Democrat-leaning newspapers gleefully printed articles with titles like Sound the alarm! Your liberties are in danger! Obviously, the Whigs denied all this, but then one political organizer for the Whigs in New York admitted, actually, yes, he had done exactly that. So that would seem a slam dunk. However, all the eligible voters seemed to just not care. They seemed to think that if the Whigs were doing it, the Democrats were also probably doing the same thing, and so it all sort of came out in the wash. So by this election, the 14th presidential election, there was already that degree of cynicism set in, and Harrison, the Whig, ends up winning by six points anyway. A bittersweet victory, because one month after he's inaugurated, he dies. And John Tyler, vice president, took over. The Chinese, Chinese Letter, Letter of 1880. 1880. 
The 24th U.S. presidential election pitted Republican James Garfield against Democrat Winfield Scott Hancock. The smart money was that Hancock would take the South and Garfield would take a lot of the North, and so campaigns mainly focused on a few battleground states in the Midwest and New York State. The October surprise this time was a short three-sentence letter published in The New York Truth claiming to have been written by Garfield to a man named H.L. Morey of Massachusetts. In it, Garfield says that while it's true that Chinese workers are coming in and stealing American jobs, that's okay since part of successful business is to find labor for as cheap as possible, and so American companies should just keep doing that. Understandably, this angered an awful lot of workers and fed into the increasing xenophobia about all these foreigners coming in here and stealing our jobs. Did it have an effect? Analysts think the letter probably ended up costing Garfield, California, where anti-Chinese sentiment was the strongest, but he only lost there by 144 votes. Anyway, when all was said and done, Garfield ended up winning the election anyway, but by only 0.2 percentage points, about 1,900 votes total in the popular vote nationwide, in an election that had one of the highest turnouts to date, 78% of registered voters actually voted. This makes the presidential race of 1880 the closest presidential race when you look at popular vote in history. After the election, it was discovered that the letter was in fact a forgery by a journalist for the New York Truth, a guy named Kenward Phillip, who was then arrested and indicted for fraud. 1884. 1884. Drunken Drunken Papists and Slaveholders. The 25th presidential election saw Grover Cleveland take the top spot. The first Democrat to win the presidency in 28 years. One major reason for this, it's thought, is that the Republican nominee, James Blaine, went to a GOP meeting near the end of the campaign season, late September, early October, where the Presbyterian minister, Dr. Samuel Bouchard, went on a rant about the Democrats, saying that Democrats were for, quote, rum, Romanism, and rebellion which was code for booze, Catholics, and the Southern Confederacy. Blaine himself didn't actually say anything, but that was the problem. He should have objected, goes the thinking, and when word got out to the press in pre-election coverage that he had just sat there quietly, everyone assumed that he actually endorsed those views. So, Roman Catholics, anti-prohibitionists, and the entire South turned against him, as well as angry Irish folks in New York, which was the state that ended up putting Cleveland over the top. So you could kind of say, by not saying anything, that Blaine October surprised himself. 1912. 1912. Too Too many many cooks. So in this presidential race, four main candidates wanted to be president. You had William Taft, who was the Republican, the incumbent. You had Theodore Roosevelt, who had already been president from 1901 to 1909 before Taft. This is before presidential term limits. He'd tried to get the Republican nomination and failed, so he just created what he called the bull moose ticket and ran as a semi-independent. You had Eugene Debs, a socialist, and you had New Jersey Governor Woodrow Wilson on the Democratic ticket. Now, for the Republicans, it was already a difficult time. Teddy Roosevelt was siphoning off votes from Taft, and the Republican Party was fighting about a bunch of different topics. Then, Taft's vice president, James Sherman, died one week before the election of Bright's disease. And, well, you know, word got around slower in those days, and uh, apparently not everyone was aware of this. As a result, in the election, three million people voted for Sherman for vice president, even though he was, you know, dead. 
You have to keep in mind back then you voted for president and then you cast a separate vote for vice president. Now the GOP had already decided that any votes that went to the deceased James Sherman would instead go to the hastily chosen replacement Nicholas Butler, president of Columbia University. But again, there was confusion. Some people knew that Sherman had died, but they didn't know that Butler was replacing him. Some people didn't know there was a replacement, so they didn't cast a vote for vice president. And anyway, when all was said and done, they got way fewer votes than they'd hoped for. Taft and Butler only ended up taking two states, Vermont and Utah, giving them only eight electoral votes and 23% of the popular vote. Eugene Debs took zero electoral votes, even though he did get 6% of the popular vote, which is the highest ever for a socialist in the United States. Teddy Roosevelt actually came in second, winning six states and getting 88 electoral votes. One reason it's thought that he did so well was an event that happened at a speech in Milwaukee on October 14th. John Schrank, a saloon keeper, shot Roosevelt in the chest just before he was about to give a speech. The bullet passed through Teddy's steel eyeglasses case and a 50-page folded copy of his speech he had in his jacket pocket. A Czech immigrant named Frank Bukowski knocked the gun away and grabbed Schrank. Roosevelt, to everyone's astonishment, proceeded to give his speech. Partway through, he said to the stunned onlookers, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. One historian writes that this was one of the greatest dramatic moments in American politics. Well, this event in October certainly boosted Roosevelt's numbers, but not enough. Wilson ended up winning it anyway with 40 states, giving him 435 electoral votes, making him the first president ever to get more than 400 votes, despite the fact he only got 41.8% of the popular vote, which was the lowest popular margin since 1860. And that's because the American system is crazy and doesn't really make a ton of sense. Look it up. 1920, 1920. Race, race enters, enters the race. race. Woodrow Wilson had won a second term after the chaotic 1912 election, and he was hoping he would get a third one. Again, remember, this is before term limits. But party leadership wanted fresh blood, so instead, they nominated Ohio Governor James Cox with a 38-year-old Franklin Roosevelt as his running mate. The Republicans put up another Ohioan, Senator Warren G. Harding, with Calvin Coolidge as his vice president choice. Harding was the favorite to win by all accounts. After all, the Democrat Wilson had got America into World War I, which wasn't super popular. He'd helped create the League of Nations, which isolationists were not keen on. Basically, he wasn't very popular among conservative-minded folks. Here comes Harding with a promise of what he called, quote, a return to normalcy, and he kind of looked like he was going to be a shoe-in. And then a rumor started just a few weeks before the election that Harding had, quote, Negro blood a rumor that made his wife openly and publicly weep when she first heard it. This rumor was started by William E. Chancellor, a professor at Worcester College, also in Ohio, well known for his racist attitudes and remarks. Harding campaign folks kind of flipped out. They were very worried about how that would play in the rather infamously uh, racist South at the time, and they spent a lot of time and effort proving Harding's European ancestry. This is kind of a, an early birther conspiracy movement, if you will. But the Democrats had their own troubles. Franklin Roosevelt, the VP pick, had been Assistant Secretary to the Navy, and at that time he had authorized investigations into rumors of rampant homosexual activity at a naval base in Newport, Rhode Island. The investigators were told by their superiors to actively engage in homosexual acts so that they could get irrefutable proof 
that would hold up in court. Homosexuality was illegal, and so when Roosevelt found out that the investigators were being told to knowingly break the law, he canceled the whole thing. But it came out anyway, so to speak. A newspaper editor in Rhode Island accused Roosevelt of allowing 83 Navy personnel who had committed, quote, unnatural acts to return to active duty. That would later turn out to not be true at all, but at the time, people believed it. Anyway, Harding ended up winning, with 37 out of 48 states and just over 60% of the popular vote. The results were heard over the radio for the very first time, giving voters the feeling that they were somehow witnessing the election results in real time. The double whammy October surprise here, one for each side, ended up not really changing much. So it seems maybe Harding's people did a good job of dispelling the notion that he was part African-American, or maybe when it came to American prejudices in 1920, homosexuality was more universally hated than black people. 1940. Race keeps on racing. So now, Franklin Roosevelt, president, Democrat, hoping to get a third term, which would make him the first person ever to get that. The war in Europe was heating up, and a lot of people thought FDR wanted to get involved, but other people wanted to stay out of it. African-American activists, thinking that maybe America was about to go to war, started criticizing Roosevelt for continuing to allow segregation in the military. FDR's Republican challenger, Wendell Wilkie, was coming out very strong for civil rights, and he was getting a lot of support from black voters. In an inadvertent October support, A press aide for the Roosevelt campaign in October got into an argument with a black police officer outside Madison Square Garden in New York and kneed him in the groin. This further inflamed African Americans. So in an effort to change voters' minds just a few days before the election, FDR promoted a black colonel, Benjamin O. Davis Jr., to Brigadier General, the first African American to ever hold such a high rank. He also started the formation of the Tuskegee Airmen, a group of elite African-American fighter pilots who would later become famous once the U.S. entered the war. FDR's October surprise maybe worked. Minority voters and the South rallied to him, and he ended up taking 38 states with 55% of the popular vote nationwide and 449 electoral votes. The only demographic he really suffered under was white-collar Protestants. 1956. 1956. Surprise from abroad. Republican incumbent Dwight Eisenhower was going up against Democrat Adlai Stevenson, who'd also challenged Ike back in 52 and lost. Dwight was well-liked by a lot of people. He was thought to be charming and affable. Plus, he'd been a decorated general in the war, and he seemed pretty tough on communism, and so was his vice president, Richard Nixon. But Stevenson was a progressive thinker, and he had recently won the first ever televised debate and seemed to be getting quite a bit of momentum, partly through an innovative new use of television, campaign ads. Stevenson's people knew that back in 52, Eisenhower had won largely due to the female vote, so both campaigns started to create and air a series of, quote, housewife ads. Eisenhower liked using the TV because he'd had a heart attack in 1955 and wasn't really up for traveling so much. Stevenson understood the medium completely, was 10 years younger than Ike, and a really good speaker on television. So it all looked pretty neck and neck. But then two October surprises from outside the U.S., intervened. 
On October 23rd, a student protest in Budapest, Hungary, grew into a full-fledged revolution attempt against Soviet control, and a week later, on October 29th, Israel invaded Egypt in what became known as the Suez Crisis or the Second Arab-Israeli War. The UK and France would join Israel in trying to wrest control of the Suez Canal from famously anti-Western Egyptian leader Gamal Abdel Nasser. Now, the Hungarian revolution attempt lasted until November 10th, when it was finally crushed by a Soviet invasion and the Suez crisis lasted until November 7th. The U.S. election was on November 6th, so both of these international events were very much on people's minds, and it's thought that they wanted a leader that they knew and trusted, and who was a military guy. Eisenhower won with low over 57% of the popular vote and 457 electoral votes, higher numbers than when he won back in 52, and that was just after the Korean War had ended. Nineteen sixty four. The world makes noise again. So as we know, Lyndon Johnson was sworn in after John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. But now, in the 1964 election, there was a chance for him to win on his own merits. The Republicans put Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater up against him. In another inadvertent October surprise, on October 7th, Walter Jenkins, who was a top aide to Johnson, was arrested at the Washington, D.C. YMCA for, quote, disorderly conduct with another man. The Y was well known as a homosexual hookup joint, and the police routinely staked it out, even installing little peepholes so they could see what was going on. Two days later, the story leaked to the Republicans, who promptly released it to the press. Then for a whole day, both sides just kind of waited to see what the public reaction would be. To everyone's surprise, the public just didn't seem to care that much. Maybe attitudes had changed since the 1920 fiasco, or it may be that international factors once again entered into things. On October 14th, Nikita Khrushchev, head of the Soviet Union, he of the We Will Bury You speech, he was ousted by Leonid Brezhnev. On October 15th, in the UK, the Labour Party managed to win over the Conservatives for the very first time in 13 years, indicating a liberalizing trend in the world. And then on October 16th, China tested their first nuclear weapon, making them the fifth nuclear state in the world. Goldwater, who was already kind of a hawk and known for his angry rhetoric, reacted to this with overblown dire warnings of dooms a coming, and apparently this just did not resonate with 1964 voters. Johnson won in a landslide, taking 44 states to Goldwater's six, getting 486 electoral votes to Goldwater's 52. 1968, 1968. tit-for-tat. For the next presidential election, Lyndon Johnson, even though he was eligible, decided not to run again. So the Democrats put up Hubert Humphrey. Richard Nixon, who used to be Eisenhower's vice president, was the Republican nominee, and a third candidate, segregationist George Wallace of Alabama, ran as an independent. Humphrey was very keen on continuing Johnson's civil rights initiative, which was not so popular among Southern voters. Wallace, who was also basically running on race issues, was already taking votes away from Humphrey in the South and elsewhere, and it really didn't look like Humphrey's chances were very good at all. But then, wily old LBJ, still in the saddle, dropped a little October surprise. On October 31st, 
he called for a halt to all bombing in North Vietnam. Now, this was hugely appealing to Democratic voters who all pretty much opposed the war in Vietnam, and suddenly Humphrey began to poll even with Nixon in the polls. Nixon countered by sending an emissary to South Vietnam to halt the peace negotiations until after the U.S. election, letting it be known to the South Vietnamese president that if Nixon won, he would give way more support to South Vietnam than Humphrey would. South Vietnam promptly withdrew from the peace talks just three days before the November 5th election in the United States. Word got round to Johnson about this, and he had the Nixon campaign offices wiretapped. Through what they heard, he confirmed that yes, Nixon really did do this. For some reason, though, he decided not to make it public, and Nixon won with 32 states and 301 electoral votes. Nixon only got 43.4% of the popular vote, Humphrey got 42.7%, and Wallace actually managed to get 13.5%, which was all of the South. After this election, the South would no longer be reliably Democrat. If Johnson had let it be known that Nixon, who was not president, was interfering in international affairs, would that have made a difference? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But there's an echo in 1980 of this. Nineteen seventy-two. Peace, peace is, is at, at hand. hand. So, Nixon was running for a second term, and while the popular groundswell of the grassroots campaign of the Democratic challenger George McGovern was quite impressive, Nixon was still pretty much clearly the front runner. But nothing's 100% in politics, and Nixon, we now know, was paranoid. The January 27th break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters of the Watergate Hotel was becoming a problem that would just not seem to go away. Plus, he had, after all, failed to live up to his promise to end the Vietnam War in his first term, so Nixon was not super confident. On the other side, McGovern had had this massive success getting support from hardworking volunteers and liberal celebrities who hated Nixon and hated the war in Vietnam. But he greatly disappointed his supporters by replacing his running mate, Thomas Eagleton, when it came out that Eagleton had received shock therapy for clinical depression back in the 60s. Eagleton got the boot on August 1st, and many McGovern supporters simply didn't bother to show up on election night. In fact, when the election came round, only 55% of registered voters from either party bothered to show up at all, which is the lowest turnout since 1948. But Nixon still wanted more assurance. On October 8th, Henry Kissinger, Nixon's Secretary of State, managed to get the North Vietnamese officials to agree to U.S. peace terms. He had an October surprise, so he hurried back to D.C., had a press conference, and announced, quote, peace is at hand. Posters with this phrase started showing up at Nixon rallies, and it looked like that the war was going to be over. Now, both Nixon and Kissinger knew that between the October 7th meeting and Kissinger's press conference, the South Vietnamese leadership had already scuttled the whole peace plan. But they said it anyway. They lied. Nixon trounced McGovern, taking 49 states, getting 520 electoral votes. McGovern, who is from South Dakota, did not take his home state, and he only took Washington, D.C. and Massachusetts, giving him a very sad 17 electoral votes. And this is despite the fact that the 26th Amendment to the Constitution, which lowered the voting age to 18, was now in effect. It had been ratified the summer before, and people thought McGovern was going to get the youth vote. 1980, 1980, the origin, origin of, the of the term October, October Surprise. surprise. 
The very first time there's any mention of this term is actually in an article published by a Lyndon LaRouche mouthpiece publication called Executive Intelligence Review on December 2nd, 1980, almost a month after Reagan won the election. Jimmy Carter was trying to get a second term, but OPEC had used the oil weapon, as it's known, for the second time, meaning that gas prices were sky high in the United States, or at least they thought so, and a religious revolution in the country of Iran put hardcore clerics in charge of that country, and a bunch of Americans at the embassy were taken hostage. It's now known that Reagan's transition team negotiated the Algiers Accords, which were signed on January 19, 1981, and then Reagan was inaugurated on January 20th. He gave a 20-minute speech after being sworn in, and then literally minutes later, the hostages in Iran were released. Now, this kind of raised a few eyebrows as to the timing. The House opened a subcommittee inquiry into how exactly the Reagan campaign had managed to get briefing materials that Carter had received as president, and they got access to many, many, many Reagan campaign documents. The wheels of justice grind slowly on the hill, and it took them until May 1984 to release their report titled Unauthorized Transfers of Non-Public Information During the 1980 Presidential Election. And they had a whole subsection devoted to this October surprise notion. The conclusion was they found no credible evidence of the various allegations. Where did this term October surprise come from? It came from William Casey, who was Ronald Reagan's campaign manager, and he was desperately worried that just before the election in October, Carter would somehow get the hostages released, which would be an October surprise, boosting him in the polls and pushing him into a second term. The idea got out there that maybe somehow the Reagan people had been in contact with Iran and managed to get the release delayed until after Reagan was elected. The House said no, and the idea just kind of languished until 1986 when the Iran-Contra affair hit the the newspapers. News outlets were keen to suggest a long-standing pattern of dirty tricks. Maybe they just had Watergate fever, and they kept hammering on both Iran-Contra and the 1980 October surprise theory for quite a while. William Sapphire of the New York Times wrote about it. Bob Woodward wrote about it for the Washington Post. The Miami Herald wrote about it. In 1991, Frontline produced a documentary on the topic. That same year, a guy named Gary Sick wrote a book called October Surprise, America's Hostages in Iran and the Election of Ronald Reagan, reviving and expanding many of these allegations. Later, that book would be found to have many holes and some outright fabrications. In August 91, a freelance writer who'd been digging into the 1980 October Surprise conspiracy theory, a guy named Danny Casolaro, was found dead in a bathtub in a hotel in West Virginia with his wrists slashed 10 to 12 times. The medical examiner said it was suicide, but all of his friends said Danny was famously squeamish about blood. He wouldn't even take a blood test. Suspicious? Maybe. Danny Casalero was also investigating a complicated series of events he thought that were connected in some way to a vast international conspiracy he called the octopus. So maybe that's what happened. Anyway, in November 1991, Newsweek ran an article saying that all or most of the October surprise allegations are nonsense, further suggesting, in fact, the theory is being pushed by the LaRouche people. That same month, New Republic also publishes a debunking article, specifically looking at the allegations made in Gary Sick's book. However, later that article is found to be not very credible in and of itself. What a mess. Anyway, all of this leads to the formation of the 1992 House October Surprise Task Force, that was what it was called, to investigate all the claims. 
Their main focus was a series of meetings that were supposed to have taken place. The details are various and contradictory, but the gist is that, again, Reagan's campaign members reached out to arms dealers who acted as intermediaries between them and the new religious government in Iran. They convinced the Iranians to stop secret negotiations they were having with the Carter administration on arms for releasing the hostages deal, and instead work with the Reagan people and delay releasing the hostages until Reagan was president. In exchange, they'd get way more weapons than Carter would ever give them, including some nice F-4 fighter bombers shipped to them via Israel. Israel was also supposed to have been involved. Now, Iran knew that Iraq was gearing up to attack them, and they really wanted those weapons, so the thinking goes. Iraq did attack them, and it was during the Iran-Iraq war that the whole Iran-Contra affair happened. So, while the October Surprise Task Group is investigating, the Democrat-controlled Senate also conducts an investigation. They release their findings in November 1992. They say it's all hooey. Then in January 1993, the October Surprise Task Force, again led by the Democrat-led House of Representatives, releases their report, also finding no credible evidence, adding many of the sources and materials that are supposed to be evidence of this conspiracy were, quote, either wholesale fabricators or impeached by documentary evidence. So, that would seem to be that didn't happen. However, some people continued to beat the October surprise conspiracy drum. In 2004, historian Ken Phillips wrote a book called American Dynasty in which he says that, yes, yes, most of the specific October surprise allegations are false, but he still thinks that the story as outlined in Gary Sick's book is the correct one. So, even though almost everything in that book is wrong, it's still the right story. The main takeaway here is whether or not the Reagan people did or did not manage to convince Iran to delay the hostage release, the October surprise was something they thought would happen to them, not something that they would make happen. 1992, 1992, Liars liars and Waffles. waffles. So Iran-Contra was a big thorn in the Republican side, and then Texas billionaire Ross Perot, running as an independent, was also stealing votes away from them. In fact, Perot was leading in the polls at some times. Bill Clinton was still doing well, despite the whole Jennifer Flowers debacle. And so, by the time 1992 came around in the summer, the election seemed to kind of be up for grabs. And then, just before the election, a little October surprise happened, Ronald Reagan's former Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, was indicted for lying during the Iran-Contra investigation. So what? Well, George W. Bush, who'd been Reagan's vice president and was now president seeking a second term against Clinton, had served with Weinberger, and this was the first time that any Iran-Contra dirt seemed to stick to Bush at all. October surprise or not, Clinton won and won comfortably, taking 32 states plus D.C. and 370 electoral votes, even though he only got 43% of the popular vote. Because of the American electoral system, Ross Perot, who got just under 19% of the popular vote, that's almost 20 million votes, still got zero states and zero electoral votes. He might have done better if he hadn't dropped out of the race in July and then re-entered the race on October 1st. Maybe Perot thought that he himself was going to be an October surprise. <laughs> 2001 for the road. George W. Bush and Al Gore were pretty much tied in the polls as October 2000 rolled around. 
And then, less than a week before the election, Fox News, of all the information outlets, broke a story that back in 1976, Bush had been arrested for drunk driving, he pled guilty, was fined $150, and had his license suspended for a year. Eh, as far as scandals go, that's pretty minor. And W spun it that A, that was a long time ago, B, that he had never tried to hide the fact that he'd once had a drinking problem, and C, he quit drinking for good in 1985. Now, we all remember that election night, though the whole show came down to pesky hanging chads and pregnant chads and recounts and court orders to stop recounts and other court orders to make them happen again, and then other court orders to resume them, and then finally a Supreme Court decision ending them all together. At that point in the game, Bush was the winner, taking 30 states and just squeaking over the 270 minimum for electoral votes with 271. Florida's 25 votes put him over the top, meaning that Bush won with the third lowest percentage of electoral votes ever. Gore, interestingly enough, had won 48.4% of the popular vote and Bush only 47.9% nationwide. In numbers, Gore got 543,895 votes more than Bush. But because of the electoral system, it really all came down to Florida. And in Florida, Bush actually got 537 more votes than Gore. And so in the American winner-take-all system, he got all 25 of those electoral votes and won. Let me say that again. 537 votes. So don't tell me that your vote doesn't count. Interestingly, Bush's victory was only the fourth time in U.S. history up to that point where the winner had fewer votes nationwide than the loser. So, the big October surprise of the DUI didn't really do much, or so you would think. However, some years later, political strategist Karl Rove said that he thought the DUI story breaking when it did, right before the election, probably cost Bush five states. And if Bush hadn't lost those five states, that whole mess in Florida with the chads and the courts may not have happened at all. 2004, 2004 the, Bush the Bush bounce. bounce. The 55th presidential election saw George W. Bush trying for a second term while Massachusetts Senator John Kerry tried to oust him. This was the first election after the 9-11 terror attacks in New York and Washington, D.C., and it seemed like the issues were pretty clear on both sides. On October 25th, the New York Times reported that a large amount of explosives had disappeared from a warehouse in Iraq during looting. The Kerry campaign thought this was an October surprise in their favor and started hammering on the Bush administration's incompetence and mismanagement. They were also very happy to change the conversation from that whole swift boat business that the Republicans had drummed up and Kerry just couldn't seem to shake. The Bush campaign replied that actually the explosives had already been correctly removed from the area before there was any looting. So, meh. Then, a few days later on October 29th, Al Jazeera TV showed a video of Osama bin Laden, still alive and still not caught, mocking Bush and his people, seeming to take credit for the 2001 attacks in the U.S. Previously, he had actually denied involvement, condemning the American response in the Middle East, as well as its continued support for Israel, and calling Bush a dictator. This October surprise managed to remind people about the whole war on terror thing, and the press started talking about the Bush bounce as Bush's poll numbers jumped six points over Kerry. Bush won the election, taking 31 states and 286 electoral votes, which is comfortably over the 270 he needed to win. 
2008, 2008. Anti-O and, and the GFC. This one really begins in September when the Global Financial Crisis, or GFC, starts seeing the economy start to really slide rapidly downhill. The Republican nominee was John McCain, who'd once been known as an independent maverick, but seemed to be towing the party line. And McCain seemed to be kind of unable to deal with what was shaping up to be a very big deal indeed. By contrast, the Democratic nominee, young Barack Obama, seemed calm and like maybe he knew what to do. Just a month before, in August, McCain in an interview had said he couldn't remember how many houses he owned. And later in September, he gave the strange and mixed message saying that the economy of the United States is strong, which is clearly from his party-approved talking points, but also that there is, quote, tremendous turmoil in our financial markets. Then, in an effort to seem like he was a can-do guy, he suspended his campaign to go back to Washington to work. He was a senator, after all. But actually, this ended up making him look weak and like he couldn't stick it out in a crisis. So Obama kept steadily increasing his lead in the polls. But there was an October surprise in store for him on Halloween, just four days before the election. AP released a story that a half-aunt of his, Zaituni Onyango, had been living in Boston illegally since 2004. The newly formed Department of Homeland Security had denied her asylum application back then and told her to leave the United States, and she had not. This keep in mind in an environment where the news media was filled with stories that Obama was a Muslim, that he was uh, schooled in a fundamentalist Islamic religious school, that he wasn't actually a U.S. citizen, and all the rest. But the anti-O story, in fact, was true. She was there illegally. McCain ended up getting a bump in the polls, though the campaign for Obama countered that the timing of the release of the story seemed awfully, quote, suspicious. Anyway, the Obama-Biden ticket ended up winning, taking 29 states plus D.C. plus Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District, look it up, it's crazy, and a whopping 365 electoral votes over the McCain-Palin tickets, 22 states and 100. 73 electoral votes. Twenty twelve storm and slander. Now the incumbent Obama's going up against the Republican challenger Mitt Romney and things were, again, pretty much even when October started. Then, Hurricane Sandy hit. At the time, the costliest hurricane to ever hit the United States. The press started going on about how this was an October surprise. By God, I suppose. Or maybe just as a result of continuing to ignore climate change warnings? Well, it certainly gave Obama a chance to look pretty presidential. And the governor of New Jersey, which had been hit pretty hard by the hurricane, Republican Governor Chris Christie came out in support of Obama. Romney didn't want to look like he was using a tragedy in order to campaign, so he kind of stepped back. Of course, there have been conspiracy theories that Obama himself created Hurricane Sandy in order to give himself a chance to look presidential because he can control the weather or he's in league with Satan or some other dumb stuff. For more on that, listen to our episode 44 for 44, Thanks Obama, the Obama Conspiracies. Anyway, back in the real world in September, there had been a late campaign surprise that did Romney no favors. An audio tape was published by Mother Jones Magazine, on which Romney could be heard saying pretty mean things about Americans that don't make enough money to pay federal income tax, saying that they considered themselves to be victims and entitled, and that those are the people who would vote for Obama anyway. 
He doubled down by saying that it was not his job to take care of those people, which is some pretty unfortunate wording there. Romney said four months after the election that he's pretty sure that it damaged his chances. Anyway, Obama took a second term with 332 electoral votes over Romney's 206, getting 51.1% of the popular vote. So there you have it. So of these October surprises, did any of them actually manage to change the outcome of the election? Most political scientists say no. Now, the 2008 election might have gone differently, many commentators and political analysts think, if there had not been this global financial crisis. It's entirely possible that McCain would have won, but that's a guessing game. Who knows? By the time October rolls around, almost everybody has already made up their mind. Oh, you may get a bit of a bump or this or this among undecideds, but no presidential election before 2016 was decided by undecideds. 2016, 2016 Anatomy, Anatomy and, and Emails. emails. The 58th presidential election saw Hillary Clinton become the first woman to run for president, pitted against real estate millionaire and reality TV show host Donald Trump. Obviously, Clinton's being a woman was a factor in the election, both for her and against her. Donald Trump got himself a little bit of an October surprise on October 7th, when a recording emerged of him talking rather candidly about how he could do anything he wanted to a woman because he was a star, including the now-famous phrase, grab them by the pussy. He added that he treated them like garbage, but they loved it because he was famous and powerful and suggesting that that's what women care about. Many in his campaign thought, uh-oh, he's done for. In an election that is at least a little bit about gender inequality, this just wasn't going to cut the mustard. Many Republicans withdrew their support, and some, such as former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, actually asked him to remove himself as the candidate. However, However there was another October surprise the same day. WikiLeaks started dropping public emails on the internet that they had anonymously received from John Podesta's account. John Podesta had been chief of staff for Bill Clinton and a counselor to Barack Obama, and at the time, he was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager. More and more documents got released, then some audio recordings. None of it was particularly flattering towards Clinton and the Clinton team. Certainly made her seem like less than a friendly person, maybe a typical party hack, maybe just ruthless. And just like that, Trump's disparaging remarks about women disappeared from the news cycle. And it was all about Hillary, 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 emails, 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 and chance of lock her up. It is now known, of course, that these email leaks, among other things, were absolutely the result of Russian interference in the American electoral process. But at the time, nobody knew that for sure. Trump went on to win 30 states plus Maine's 2nd Congressional District, look it up, it's weird, getting 304 electoral votes. Clinton took 20 states plus D.C. and got 227 electoral votes. Again, the weird American system once again had the person who had the fewest overall nation votes winning. Clinton actually got 48.2% of the popular vote, almost 2.7 million more votes than Trump. But because of the electoral college system, Trump got more electoral votes. Voter turnout wasn't great, wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. It was about 60%, leading many commentators to speculate that maybe the mean-spiritedness of the whole campaign season combined with two candidates they didn't really like meant that a lot of people just stayed home. In four states, 
with 50 electoral votes among them, the margin of victory was less than 1%, with Trump getting three of those. And in another eight states, the margin of victory was between 1% and 5%. So again, don't say your vote doesn't matter. It does, or at least it might. Interestingly enough, the 2016 election was the first time since 1808 in which multiple electors pledged against the candidate that they were instructed to vote for. These are known as faithless electors, and that's a whole nother topic. Look it up. It's weird. So, October surprises don't work. A video on Vox says that cable news networks like the easy-to-digest concept of October Surprise. They basically each year now choose something to be their October Surprise, and they run with it, mentioning it over and over and over again. This is straight-up PR methodology. They hammer and hammer and hammer on the crisis in the few weeks leading up to the election because it gives them lots of little sound bites that they can repeat and it boosts numbers that they can measure. Things like how many people watched their program or went to their website, how many people shared their stories on social media, how many web searches were done around the sound bites that they've been pushing and so on. Members of the public, while apparently not really being convinced to change their minds by the topic in question, will almost certainly get confirmation bias if it comes out on one side or another that they already believe and help reinforce the decisions that they have already made. So this cyclical system kind of runs kind of like a hurricane and cynical politicians attempt to use it to their advantage. But again, most political analysts say it doesn't actually affect the election. Having said all this, Some analysts think that the 2016 email dump, October surprise, thanks to WikiLeaks and we now know Russian intelligence initiatives, may in fact actually have swayed the election. Because for the first time in U.S. election history, it looks like that the 2016 election may have actually been decided by previously undecided voters. Now this is a worrying trend. What I find objectionable is this idea that the electorate, that's you, the voters, are just such brainless cattle that you'll change your vote because you see a news story 50 times in 14 days. I just find that disgusting. And more importantly, as we said, with the possible exception of 2016, it's wrong. I don't need to urge you not to be swayed one way or another by media scare stories because research shows that generally you're not, not in any meaningful way. Remember, The media is not right-wing biased, and it is not left-wing biased. It is conflict biased. If it bleeds, it leads. That's how they measure success. So don't feed the machine. When October rolls around again, ignore all the October surprise stories and find out what isn't getting trumpeted, what happened that isn't being reported so much. Try to find the signal in the noise. That's how you can get through it. Maybe if we can find a way not to let it get to us, to calm down our personal reactions to these cynical attempts to manipulate our emotions and moss, then maybe we can make it to Thanksgiving, which is just 23 days after election night. And Thanksgiving can be a little nicer for everyone. And also, come election night, vote. Vote on every thing you can. Vote for president, congress, state, county, city, school board, sheriff, dog catcher, librarian, whatever you have the chance to vote on, vote on it. And vote early. Make sure your vote is counted.
Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening. <laughs>